Michelle, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, well, I got to say, Friends of Science, I told you before we started recording, but Friends of Science is one of my favorite accounts to follow on X. Um, you guys are the the humor, the wit that you write is is hilarious. Uh, but but also it's just good to to see that there's a you know a group of scientists in our country in Canada who are addressing the climate change narrative uh, with with actual facts. Well, thank you. And you know we started in 2002 was just a handful of uh, retired and semi-retired geoscientists, professional engineers, uh, business people, a couple of citizens. Just a handful of people who thought, well, you know, the whole Kyoto thing, uh, the Kyoto Accord was kind of a forerunner to the Paris Agreement uh, and very similar. <clears throat> they, they thought, well, you know, actually, this looks like bad science. Uh, and it also looks like terrible economics, especially for Canada, a cold, dark, vast country with a sparse population and a big resource economy. So, you know, they thought, well, obviously, if we just tell people, you know, we'll write a few briefs and send them to various politicians and representatives, and surely they'll come to their senses. <laughs> right, right. So, so here we are 20 years on. And uh, nobody came to their senses yet. Um, <laughs> right, right. So let's talk about that science because, you know, um, I'm a layman. I'm not a scientist. I, I try to, I try my best to understand what I'm reading, but I, I you know, I, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's like a foreign language to me, right? Like I, I, I get it. I get the message. I get the point, but I, I don't understand the data. So would you mind um, just highlighting like a few of the data points uh, you know, in those those early agreements, the Paris Agreement, Kyoto, that that were maybe misleading. Sure. Uh, for one thing, people think that the Paris Agreement is a legally binding treaty. It's not. It was just an agreement that countries would every five years send in an assessment of how they were doing on reducing emissions. And in fact, if I understand correctly, fossil fuels was never even mentioned in the Paris Agreement. And it's only now during COP28 that all the environmental groups have been, you know, planning for a phase out of fossil fuels, fast, fair, or feminist, <laughs> and, uh, and, and trying to get fossil fuels into the agreement so that then they could denounce it. Um, but uh, the Paris Agreement set this target of 1.5 degrees Celsius which most people think if we go past that temperature degree that we'll all fry up or something or the sea will boil over as James Hansen wrote in his book many years ago, Storms for My Grandchildren, I think it's called, um, or that uh, you know we'll have global boiling as Antonio Guterres said in the fall. Um, none of those things are true. We have a great uh, video presentation by Dr. Hus Burkut of Clintel on our website. And Dr. Burkut takes us on a tour around the globe. Let me just show you. You know, he goes around the globe in one direction and finds that there's an 85 degree Celsius differential in temperatures and goes around the globe uh, around the equator and finds there's like a 43 degree temperature differential. So what what is, 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius going to do and people say oh well you know if you saw the any of the COP coverage you saw that Antonio Guterres was down in Antarctica 
and he was claiming look antarctica is melting well for one thing it's summer down there and the other thing is there's 91 <laughs> volcanoes under antarctica that are active and they're melting the ice from under and then Catherine mckenna was wearing some little uh necklace and she was saying well you know i wear this necklace because the inuit people gave it to me and the arctic sea ice is melting so melting away was the theme well you know the arctic sea ice the arctic is really like a big ice cube floating on top of water and if you have ice cubes in water at home and they melt your cup does not runneth over <laughs> right it right. just becomes part of the fluid there and uh, actually the arctic is underlain by these currents warm and cold currents of the ocean that are constantly fluctuating going in and out um so when people are talking about this melting and what a risk that would be to sea level rise well you know sea level rise is about 1.8 millimeters a year that's the thickness of two dimes stacked one on top of the other so you know these people are making very hysterical claims and they're making them all about carbon dioxide and 1.5 degrees celsius when 1.5 degrees celsius is not going to melt the arctic ice what's melting it is volcanic activity and 1.5 degrees celsius is not going to melt the arctic what affects it are those currents that go in and out um and so sea level rise is not a huge risk but you'll find at the cop 28 uh, on the twitter feed you'll find that they've come up with some um computer generated thing where you can see glasgow underwater um, because of all this melting <laughs> they never show Schiffeld Airport in Holland, which is four meters below sea level. And somehow 68 million people still managed to go there, land there and take off from there. That was pre-COVID. Um, you know, so there are things we can do about sea level rise if in fact it rises in a um, you know, serious way. But the likelihood of it rising from this melting up here or down here, these are just theatrics done by these people. They're manipulating the public with fear mongering. And, uh, you know, that's what a lot of the climate story is really about. And, and yeah, you know, it's the, the, the glass of water analogy you gave is one that I've often thought of because it's like, well, yeah, okay, the water ice caps melt and go into the ocean or the, the ice caps in the ocean melt. But it's not like we're adding more water. It's water that already exists, right? And and it's like we 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 think we have this very rudimentary view of the ocean. Like it's this small pool of water that's like dangerously high. Like two thirds of our planet are covered by it. So it's like I'm pretty sure it can handle whatever water is going into it. Um now I want to ask you about the the propaganda because exactly as you outlined, like I remember watching an inconvenient truth from Al Gore. Yeah. And I can't remember if this scene is in that documentary specifically, but I remember a scene where there's a polar bear floating away on a sheet of ice. And the idea is this poor polar bear is floating away into nothing. And I'm watching this going, does nobody know polar bears can swim? 
Like that's, that's, they spent a lot <laughs> of their time in, in the ocean. Like he can jump off and swim back to land at any point. And polar bears can actually can swim out quite, quite far and exist in, yeah. and exist in the ocean for a while. So what do you think is motivating this? Because it, the, the lies are so over, over the top and so egregious. What, like, what is it, is it just purely political? Well, I think that there are quite a few factors that most people are not aware of. Uh, one of them is that this is basically an extension of Enron. And if people remember, Enron was one of the world's leading energy companies back in the late 1990s. Um, they were very innovative. They called themselves the smartest guys in the room. And, uh, of course, it collapsed in, uh, into ashes and dust in a huge bankruptcy because it turned out that they were calculating a lot of their profitability on sort of an off-books accounting method where they were calculating future profits as if present. Um, and uh, a lot of it was based on wind subsidies, the flow-through shares, the renewable energy certificates and all that. So when it collapsed, there's a lot of big philanthropies and a lot of big institutional investors who either were already into those markets or who found it very interesting. Like one of the trusts of Enron was called the Osprey Trust, I believe it was. And they had a 23% return in one year. Now, of course, you only get that because you're manipulating the books because very few companies ever have that kind of return on investment. Um, so you have to realize that all the major pension funds in the world, all the government pension funds in the world, have suffered a number of hits over the year. years. The real estate crisis, the dot-com collapse, the 2008 subprime mortgage, and on and on and on. So a lot of them are have huge unfunded liabilities, like CalPERS is one that's fairly well known. It's the California Pension Retirement System for public employees. And uh, they have something like a $100 billion unfunded pension liability. Um, in the meantime, since the 1970s, unions have become shareholders of corporations. And a fellow named Peter Drucker who was considered to be the management expert in the world in the um, probably the 1970s to 90s, he wrote a book called uh, Pension Fund Socialism. And he predicted that most of the corporations in North America would become owned by union pension funds within the next 10 or 20 years. And that is what happened. So what's what does that got to do with climate, you ask? Well, in 2005, an organization called the United Nations Principle for Responsible Investment was formed. Uh, this was formed by most of the major pension funds of the world. Um, and uh, the idea, you know, sounds good that you have responsible investment, that you're not putting your money into, say, um, uh, is it the Congo where all the children are mining cobalt? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's occurring all over Africa, but yeah, I believe the Congo is part of that. Right. So, you know, that you're not going to be investing there, that you're going to maintain some kind of corporate social responsibility. So the idea sounds good. But what in effect happened 
is they ended up drawing together about a thousand big pension funds and institutional investors who have um, assets under management of $100 trillion. They then set out these ESG guidelines, and part of that includes diversity, equality, and inclusion. Um, and they started swaying public policy. Like up until that time, you know, all these institutional investors, they just put their money where they thought the best returns would come from. Um, but then that started changing because they became activist investors and they became absolute activist investors after the Montreal Pledge, which was done in 2014, where they actively pledged to go to governments and corporations who were climate laggards and tell them to get on board. So it could be that at that time, people really thought, you know, that wind and solar and renewables and all that would would lead to to this, the you know, net zero, the zero marginal cost society. Now, this book is probably one of the most influential books out there. And this is probably why people like Stephen Gilbo, Catherine McKenna actually think that, you know, the unicorn world is possible. Hmm. Um, now, this fellow, Jeremy Rifkin, this has been translated to about 36 different languages. He proudly brags on Amazon that he is responsible for German um, energy policy, <laughs> which, you know, they're now in despair yeah. and in heat or eat poverty. So anyway, the point being that this UNPRI, they also adopted Al Gore as their fiduciary guru. Um, uh, you know, they started manipulating markets um, because they have so much financial power. So, and also governments. So there's actually a book by um, Adam Harms, who's a professor in one of the Ontario universities. I think it might be Western. Um, he wrote a book called... Um, Unseen power, how mutual funds can actually sink uh, whole jurisdictions because of their investment decisions. So, you know, if you look at Canada, for instance, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, they're very into renewables. It's a huge fund. They have, I think, 300,000 members. QP, very into green. They have 600,000 members. Unifor, um, not sure what their membership is, but it is in the hundreds of thousands also very into renewables. So you have these bodies that can, they can go to governments and banks and say, hey, get on board with the Paris Agreement, which uh, one of them did that I know of for sure, um, or we'll pull our money. You see, you can go to any corporation. You can go to your oil sands corporation, right? If you're an investor there and say, listen, um, we want you to invest in wind and solar. So maybe the CEO would go, no, I, you know, really, I want to stick with our core business. That's what we know. And they go, well, I guess you don't have to be CEO. And he's like, you're right. And they go, you know, we give dividends and benefits to people who <laughs> think this is a good idea. Well, you know, there's not many jobs for CEOs out there, right? And a wind farm, what's that, $150 million when you're dealing with it? multi-billion dollar projects in oil and gas, sure, we'll build a wind farm. We don't mind. Then we'll sell more gas. We'll sell more <laughs> right. We'll sell more oil anyway, and we'll get all the renewable energy certificates. Anyway, these groups 
as I was talking about the UNPRI and the institutional investors. So now we've established they have tremendous power, financial power and power of numbers. Um, there's another organization called the CDP Worldwide. Now they began about the same time as the UNPRI. It's a Rockefeller charity offshoot and uh, they began sending voluntary requests to corporations and cities and asking them to account for their carbon footprint and most of them did in good faith well what they they would do is gather all that those questionnaires they'd give them to a big accounting firm like um, accenture or pwc deloitte and they would aggregate all the responses and then they would come up with a big report that would be issued to the institutional investors who have the hundred trillion dollars in assets under management, showing them who was a good or bad guy. And in fact, uh, a number of their publications, I don't know if they still do it, but they literally had a black and white list. So you were on the white list if you were considered to be clean and green and the black list if you didn't respond to their request. So, you know, you can see why people in corporations would willingly um, comply with this voluntary request because they want investment. So, you know, the irony is that uh, if you look back to about the 19, where is it? 1990s, late 1990s, I think Exxon was the top share, uh, top in the stock market, the top company. And by um, 2007, I think it was all the top nine were high tech companies. Why? Because they all projected this aura of being clean and green. Most of them also say we're 100% renewable. Well, that's drawn all the investors there. But in fact, none of those companies could exist without oil, gas and coal. Right. So it's that is a big lie, but it's all driven by the UNPRI, the CDP worldwide, and now uh, another group of influencers that would be all the big green philanthropies. They also formed in about 2005, six, Climate Works. Uh, Climate Works was uh, about the top 15 or so biggest philanthropies, most of them in the States. So you have Bloomberg, uh, you have the, uh, what is it, William and Mary uh, Hewlett. Mm -hmm. I'm getting them all mixed up. Anyway, there there's a whole list of them. And also Vivian Krauss has been tracking them all. Um, so these guys all got together and they worked with McKinsey, which is the world's largest management firm. And they came up with a thing called Design to Win, which is a plan to give money to local environmental groups to activate and agitate for policies that these guys want, but make it look like it's grassroots policy. Mm. So when you have things like the tar sands campaign, that was all funded for the most part from out of the country initially, millions of dollars in various uh, provinces, not just Alberta. Um, and you may say, well, why? Why are they doing all this? Their ultimate goal is to set up two global carbon trading systems. And ultimately, it will all also come down to you and I having a personal carbon ration and trading in carbon credits. And what 
drives the carbon credit industry, wind and solar. These generate the renewable energy certificates. So I, I hope that's kind of put some of the big puzzle pieces together. Um, crazy as it sounds, there it's all true. I can provide you with links. It's all happening. Yeah. And, uh, it's it's so ins it's so insidious, you know. Right. And yeah, please, please go ahead. And, and and we've all been indoctrinated into believing that this is all saving the planet, right? And that we have to do our part. And if we do our part, we'll save the planet. In the meantime, these guys are making a fortune on carbon trading and subsidies and flow through shares and all the special arrangements that there are for renewables that don't exist for any other business. Yeah, yeah. You know, that last 15 minutes was probably the most important 15 minutes of my life for the last while because you clarified so so many things about this issue you know i because it's it's hard right because you don't want to lean too far into conspiratorial thinking that's at least the way I, I i view things myself you know i'm a very practical person despite some of the things i write on what people may think of I, I you know as crazy as i may be some of the stuff i write but I try to always approach things from a practical perspective. What does, excuse me, party A have to gain? What do they have to lose? Why are they involved in this? Why is this happening? That's, that's the way I approach everything whenever I'm analyzing an issue, whether I'm going to write about it or I'm just trying to determine, you know, what's the truth in my own personal life. And this one has been so confusing because there are so many voices that are screaming the sky is falling and the world is ending, right? And you think to yourself, well, this wouldn't be such a prevalent, you know, message, you know, across countries and cultures if if there wasn't some truth to it. But yeah, I mean, as you just as you just explained perfectly, um, I mean that they're 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 it all what it really all boils down to is profit and control. And right. Now I want to ask you why why would these companies and or corporations and governments want to bring in a a carbon credit system? Why would they want to control the movement of people? Well, if you control carbon, you control life. I would say there's a few different things and probably they've evolved over time. Um like I first of all I want to also say I think that there are concerns about how humans are affecting the world, certainly on the environmental level. Um, I would say in Canada, we do one of the best jobs in the world of taking care of the environment. And in Alberta, particularly, we have very clean air, clean water. We really have, uh, I think, a very good system. And most of the companies here are quite reliable and compliant. Um, but you can see around the world where there are mass uh, you know, gyres of plastic floating around the shores of some of these developing nations where they have no recycling program or whatever. Um, and they can't afford it. You know, you need money in order to do those kinds of things. And we probably have some impact on the climate as well. But I don't think that it's catastrophic. And the evidence doesn't show that it's catastrophic. And also, when you look at geological time there have been very vast changes in temperature and conditions over geological time that cannot have ended when humans <laughs> came on earth you know mm -hmm. so obviously it's a we're a small part so i think there is something to say that climate change is real yes humans do contribute somewhat it's not catastrophic 
But um, when you look at these issues of control, like for instance, if you're a major company and you need resources to uh, make things happen for you, you know, after a while you start looking around saying, well, why are all these peons wasting the resources that I need? Um, you know, and if they're not the peons that are buying my stuff, why would I want them? And also in terms of things, groups like the World Economic Forum, for instance, if you're a major corporation like Google, Facebook, whoever, and you're working transnationally, just imagine the cost of having to have a legal department in every country, a compliance department in every country. You know, I mean, it's a huge burden on you. Wouldn't it be better if it was just all global, mm -hmm. right? If there was just one rule. And then the other aspect of this, which relates to energy, um, you know, because we live in Canada, we have lots of oil and gas and coal here and wood and, you know, and hydro, we never really have to worry about whether or not there's sufficient supply. We don't realize that most of the rest of the world does not have supply of a reliable supply of energy. Like Europe is the biggest example. And I really only realized this when I interviewed William Kay back in about 2016. And he said at the time that Europe was importing about $600 billion worth of fossil fuels every year. So oil, natural gas, and coal. Now, Germany is a huge industrial heartland. They cannot survive without natural gas in quantity. Um, there's a big factory there for BASF. Uh, it's called Ludwigshafen. It's about... Uh, 10 square kilometers, they employ about 29,000 people, they make 20,000 different products and, and uh, useful materials that make other products. Well, they need natural gas for the product stream, they need uh, natural gas to fire their um, plant. And they're actually shutting down and moving to China, because they can't get a reliable supply anymore because of the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, and because Nord Stream pipeline was blown up. Mm -hmm. So Russia just doesn't have the natural gas they need um, to run all this industry. So you can see why some countries would also want to have a globalized move so that um, energy resources would be shared equally. You know, that some superpower, um, the UN, the WEF, as they put themselves up there, you know, some super elite would decide, okay, well, Alberta has 50% of the free world oil supply. So we're going to dole that out now to all these different countries, because we're going to decide what's a fair distribution. We're not going to decide on free market economic, economics anymore, where you can just come to my country and say, please buy some of our oil from our oil sands, or please buy some of our natural gas, let's make a deal, we'll buy your cotton, you'll buy our oil, what a great deal. No, 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 you know, there are people who want to be in charge of that distribution with no national boundaries. Uh, and so all of these different weird ideas are all part of this uh, climate cult. And of course, there's also a big, big part of the climate cult, which are Malthusian depopulationists. There are uh, many 
um, papers you can find online and speakers who are really obsessed with what they call overshoot. They believe that there are too many people on the planet using too many resources. So one thing is to make people use less resources. How do you do that? A personal carbon ration. And get rid of people. How do you do that? Well, you know, we've seen what's happened the past three or four years that got rid of quite a few people. And what's going to happen, I think, more, you know, there's huge medical backlogs in most of the Western countries. And most of those Western countries have huge unfunded pension liabilities. Um, I think it was 2016, the Citibank issued a report saying that Western countries, OECD countries, have $78 trillion in unfunded pension liabilities. Mm. So, of course, if you can get rid of some of those old people and boomers like myself, and you can do it early, <laughs> then yeah. you're going to reduce that liability. Uh, you know, and, and we see now also, I should add this on, the healthcare community has now jumped into the climate bandwagon. And they're into net zero healthcare. Mm -hmm. So they want to reduce and they want to cut healthcare emissions in half by 2030. And one of the most intensive areas of emissions in healthcare, hospitals. So, you know, if they can deny you care, then they reduce their carbon footprint. Yeah. I, yeah. And all yeah. the sickening things that fall out of that idea. Yeah. Um, so I spoke to Brett Weinstein a few days ago. And we talked okay. about the WHO pandemic treaty. And um, I mean, this is so sinister that it's, again, it's like you hear it and you're like, I can't, like you, your mind can't, you can't wrap your mind around what's going on. You know, you can't wrap your mind around what they want and what they're after. And, you know, he pointed out something to me that really illuminated a lot of this is, is it's, it's that we're not psychopaths. We don't think the way they think. And, and in fact, the reason why we're winning this fight is because we have integrity. They don't have integrity. They don't see it the way we see it. They don't see, uh, you know, just just being morally correct as being anything of value. And so it's hard to, to, to think about it in the terms that you explained it, because it's like, why would anybody ever want to do that? Why would anybody want to depopulate entire countries? But, you know, now that you've brought up the, now that we've been talking about the pensions, I, I, I personally believe that the underlying motivation behind Daniel Smith pushing to remove Alberta from the Canada pension plan. And for our listeners who aren't familiar, Daniel Smith is our premier here, here in Alberta, which is Canada's version of a governor. Um, I, I think that there's a part of that tactic that is intended to reveal or expose the fact that there's no money there. That the, that the, that the, CP, the money that is supposed to exist in, in the CPP fund no longer exists and that would lead to us understanding exactly what you just explained you know the reason for a depopulation agenda the reason why they want to get rid of people i mean do you, is there anything to that or am i just kind of concocting something in my head that 
that doesn't exist? Well, I can't comment on, um, you know, what monies may or may not be in the Canada Pension Plan. But I will say, for instance, you know, there was a big push by all these uh, unions to phase out coal in Alberta. Most of the health unions pushed for that. 7,000 Albertans lost their job. But where is CPP investing their money? They're investing their money in coal in China. You know, mm -hmm. what a slap in the face for those individuals. And I would also suggest that um, a lot of the subsidy programs related to renewables and carbon trading and such like, um, I believe that they are a flow through prop up for many of these unfunded pension liabilities. And this is why governments go along with it because governments also wanna collect their pensions. And uh, who knows how critical it may be because you know, wind and solar are collapsing. Like just like in 2008, when there was a huge uh, crush in the world with the subprime mortgage um, in 2018, the CEO of Iberdrola, which is a Spanish renewables firm, forecast a global Enron-style meltdown in renewables. And we do see that happening now. Like uh, uh, one of the big renewables companies, I don't remember if it was Siemens, but I think so. They lost about 47% on the stock market in like one day. You know, first of all, the cost of materials has gone up dramatically. The cost of oil, gas, and coal has gone up dramatically the supply of essential materials like copper uh, is reduced because with the push for net zero of course everyone is desperately trying to get into that market um, so they don't have a material supply chain to support their goals um, a lot of the wind turbines especially the big ones at sea have been found to be faulty and so they're going to have to either pay to fix it all or just declare losses and write it off. Uh, so uh, it's no longer attracting finance because all these problems are coming to the fore. So I think, you know, what we've seen is like a lot of stock pump and dump through all the climate hysteria. This is the new project. Look at EVs. EVs are going to save the planet. All the stock money went there. All the investment went there. Now, of course, no one's buying EVs. There's not enough chargers. The range doesn't work. They have a fire risk. So EV sales have dropped right off. Um, so I, I think that a lot of these uh, stock or climate change plans and initiatives have really been propping up a lot of the pension funds in the world. Now, related to what we were talking about, about depopulation. In 2012, the International Monetary Fund issued a paper. And in, I think it was chapter four of this paper, they stated that good health care makes people live too long. And that if people live three years longer, this creates huge pension fund liabilities. So um, there's a Fraser Institute paper that uh, outlines the fact that in terms of unfunded liabilities, Canadians are on the hook for over a quarter of a million dollars each. So if you create, say, a long-term lockdown situation where you have now a huge backlog of people suffering because they didn't get care in time, 
And then you at the same time create a MAID program, medical assistance in dying, uh, that's offered to people that costs about $800 per person to, to initiate. That's, that's a huge savings versus this more than a quarter of a million dollar unfunded pension liability. And so um, to what extent all those circumstances were contrived, I don't know. But I would say that the fact that they existed um, has now created this kind of uh, climate eugenics world. And it's quite real. And we keep hearing people like Yuval Noah Harari, who's kind of a right-hand guy to Klaus Schwab, talking about useless eaters. And as soon as people are identifying others as useless eaters, uh, you can be sure that the same kind of thing will be happening in society as what happened in pre-war Germany, in the Weimar Republic. They used to send a little van around to pick up people who were deemed to be mm, useless eater, incompetent. They'd say, oh, we're going to take them for a medical exam. And they would take them for a medical exam, examine them, and walk them into the next room and gas them with carbon monoxide. And then send a note back saying, oh, we're very sorry. The uh, operation was not a success. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, long before the Shoah, and that's not to denigrate the Holocaust for what it was, but long before that, German society had decided that useless eaters were not economic and should be gotten rid of. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that story. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's strange, right? Because you look back in time, and you, you think, that'll never happen here. I mean, that's bar that's barbarism. That's something that we've progressed beyond. But yet here we are. I mean, we have farmers being targeted, being told that they can't, that they're producing too much nitrogen with their fertilizer. Can Can you talk to that? Can you speak to that? Because that's one that just I, I've I've read a bunch on it. I've watched a number of videos on it, but I am far too stupid to explain. Can you can you explain the, the why they're going after farmers and and this this whole nitrogen discussion that has emerged uh, under the the climate change banner? Well, um, I can speak in general terms. Uh, generally speaking, uh, you know the the carbon counters and the climate cultists have broken the world down into the various sources of emissions. And, you know, because uh, it's kind of like, like that saying, you know, if you give a person a hammer, everything they see is a nail. That's how these guys are thinking. So they look and they go, wow, agricultural emissions are about 30% of the emissions. Let's get rid of agriculture, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's very blinkered. Uh, thinking. I mean, obviously, everything that people do will generate emissions. Um, and so they're looking at uh, nitrogen emissions from uh, ammonia, anhydrous ammonia fertilizer, right? Uh, well, because we use fertilizer, we have very significant crop production. And fertilizer is expensive. So farmers are not out there spraying 30% more fertilizer than they need. They are very um, frugal with their use of fertilizer because it's very expensive. But when you use the right amount, and I think they have a little slogan about, you know, the, the right amount, the right place, the right time, the 
right season, uh, something like that. You know, when you use it properly, then you have prolific crops, which is what we want. You know, a hundred years ago in Alberta, a family farm could produce enough wheat or other grain product that might feed two or three other families. We, you know, now a farm family can produce enough that will feed 125 other families. I, you know, so the efficiency today is actually excellent. And these guys are trying to destroy it by reducing the use of fertilizer, which in turn will reduce crop production. And that in turn will lead to higher food prices and more people starving in the world because there'll be less productivity. You know, this is a breadbasket here. And by the same token, they're advocating for things like um, um, biofuels, like corn ethanol. And I'll just flip to the States right now. You know, corn ethanol is probably the cause of a lot of the civil unrest in the world that began in around 2010. When people think of the uh, Arab Spring and they think, oh, look at that, all the people in Egypt are going for democracy. Well, actually, most of the people in that Middle East, North Africa region were hungry. And they're not in a situation where they can pick up another job because um, by 2020, uh, 100 million young Arabs uh, reached maturity at job market secured job market age without any option for work. There's no work for them. At the same time, these um, this corn ethanol uh, project in the States moved six uh, megatons of corn off world markets. And corn is the basic food that people in these uh, poor countries eat and it also what they feed their cattle. So, you know, that upped food prices dramatically. And that's what caused a lot of that civil unrest to the point that there's a group in the States called New England Complex Systems Institute they could track where the next civil unrest would be based on the food price. And they related it all back to climate policy of the um, foreign ethanol. Wow. This, yeah. I'm so glad I'm talking to you. You're answering so many questions. I, like, I don't even have to ask questions. You're just answering <laughs> them. It's great. Um, yeah, you know, and and just going back to the, to the night... I, I can't, I don't know if I'm saying it, it's either, I think it's nitrogen, nitrogen or nitrous oxide. I'm, I, I'm too dumb for parts of this conversation. I'm sorry, <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> I'm an ordinary person myself, so I'm not a scientist. But I watched a video uh, from a farmer who was showing how uh, they use alfalfa to pull the nitrogen out of the earth from the fertilizer after after they uh, they harvest a crop, right? So they harvest a crop, there's all this nitrogen left over and they plant alfalfa sprouts because alfalfa naturally pulls the nitrogen out of the earth and then they kind of repeat the cycle, right? And, <clears throat> you know, for me, I'm, I'm like, yeah, like this is, this is genius science that has existed for centuries that farmers are aware of that average dum-dums like me don't know. So it's it's easy for these special interest groups to sell this story of, well, the, there's too much nitrogen in a fertilizer, it's destroying the earth, without knowing that farmers themselves are scientists, and they have devised methods to pull the nitrogen out of the earth. And and because it's their livelihood, they have to keep replenishing the earth, they can't just, you know, 
farm it and leave it bare. They have whatever plot of land they have, they have to maintain it. Um, and, and so it seems like the more we explore the subject, the more we circle back to a depopulation agenda. And as you mentioned, if you reduce agriculture, then you raise the prices of food and you essentially guarantee that there's a, an even larger percentage of the population that's going to die as a result. You're, you're going to create a famine. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just so blown away by the things that you're saying. Now, is there any, is there any truth to the idea that the, that the planet is actually warming? Because I've heard, I've heard arguments that we're actually in a cooling period. Is, is there any truth to that? Well, it depends on the time frame. So this is the trick. You know, most of the climate uh, catastrophists look at the last 100, 150 years and they go, oh, wow, look at this. We're warming. Well, right. But that's because we came out of the Little Ice Age. So I don't know if I have my. Oh, I do have one of them. So if we look at, say, I usually have a bigger one, but this is present time over here, mm -hmm. and that's 2,000 years ago, and the colored bars represent the fluctuation of warm and cool periods. So you can see that it's cyclical. You can see that from our present time where it is warm, prior to that, it was very cold. And for a very long time and sometimes extremely cold and prior to that we look down here you know in the medieval warm period it was very warm sometimes extremely warm and for quite a long time and then there was a cold dip before that and a warmer period cold warmer so you can see that it's cyclical um so you know if you looked at a very large uh long-term graph of the Holocene, you would see that we're actually in a cooling cycle. And uh, probably the temperatures today are on a par or less than in the medieval warm period or the Roman warm period. Um, these are often called optimums. And when, why is that? Because civilization flourished in those times when it was warmer. Because, you know, crops are more abundant when it's warmer. Um, the weather is less erratic when it's warmer, and um, that's the time that we built cathedrals and, you know, because people had spare energy and spare food. But when you look at the uh, Little Ice Age, it, it's, um, it, it's horrible what happened. And that's when Mary Shelley died, for instance. And how did that come about? Well, um, there was a period of very long-term rains all across northern Europe and England. At one point, it rained almost nonstop for about three years. Uh, so she and her fellow travelers went to Switzerland trying to escape this. Uh, and uh, some of the things that are written in, um, in the diaries of people at the time, you know, men like scarecrows in a muddy field digging up rotted potatoes, desperate for something to eat. So, you know, you can imagine those kind of images. And then she ends up in some, uh, they were in like sort of a Swiss, uh, I don't think it was a castle, but some kind of a Swiss manor, you know, creepy kind of castle. <laughs> and having seen, you know, starving people in the fields on their way there, 
um, and having been surrounded by people in famine, you can see where all the ideas of Frankenstein would come from, uh, from a lively imagination trapped in a, in a gloomy <laughs> manner while uh, living in times of nonstop rain and cold. I mean, imagine how cold that would be then with no natural gas heating, you know, only a, a fireplace. I mean, uh, you know, so people don't understand how horrible the little ice age period was. This was not an optimal time for human survival. Uh, this is also a time when, you know, it's ironic, one of the best loved films and stage shows is Les Miserables. Well, it was set at the end of the Little Ice Age, and you see how people were starving. In fact, uh, the lead character was thrown in jail for stealing a loaf of bread to give to his sister. Mm -hmm. So um, I forget what my point was there, other than that climate is cyclical. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Uh, you know, I, I, I've heard so many arguments about this back and forth, right? But I do, I, I do know that. I, I mean, I took ninth grade science, right? I know that climate is cyclical, and every, I, I think anybody that passed through a reasonably, you know, decent high school system knew that. And that's that's what's so confusing to me is how this lie and this narrative has been sold to people who don't seem to put any thought into it whatsoever, right? And the narrative is just humans are are killing the planet and we got to do something to stop it. And, you know, the further you drill into it, the more you realize, no, we're not actually destroying the planet. If if anything, we're, we're living harmoniously with it, more so now than really ever before because we have the science and the technology to do so, right? Um, now, I want to talk about our, our carbon output because, you know, of course, that's top of the list in terms of climate change and the discussion. And this is going to be a broad question, but feel free to take it anywhere that you want. Um, is our burning of fossil fuels and our and our carbon output doing really anything to to impact the world that we know of? Well, I would say there's nominal warming effect, but that's beneficial. Uh, you know, uh, you can just look at Alberta right now. We've had sort of a, a Chinook fall across almost all of the province. I bet if you look at your heating bill compared to what it is when it's minus 40, you're going to mm -hmm. see that you have quite a good benefit on your heating bill because it's been a warm fall. Um, so, so people don't take that into account. Uh, people don't recognize that when we have warm weather, we do have optimal agricultural output. Yes, of course, we do also have droughts, but that's a separate thing from um, human-influenced climate change. That is also cyclical, often related to El Nino or La Nina cycles, which are out over the ocean in the Pacific, but these have very wide-ranging effects, but they have nothing to do with human-caused climate change. Um, again, if I can just step back for a moment, and you know, when you think of all the teachers unions and the university unions and all their pension funds, they're all signatory to the UNPRI, where Al Gore is the fiduciary guru, and who knows what they may have investments in. They may be in mutual funds that are invested in either uh, renewables or carbon trading or some other kind of climate related thing. Uh, the same for cities, you know, municipal bonds may be 
uh, related to the UNPRI. Uh, these investors and some of these municipal bonds are like, I think the city of Paris has like a 50 year municipal bond for public transit. So you, you see how these financial elements become the driver for the messaging and ideology that's going through the not only university academia, but also to the students because it supports the economic case on the other side. Whether or not people are actually aware of it, whether or not the ATA as teachers, as individuals, whether they're aware that their retirement fund is invested in wind and solar in Ontario, um, or whether the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, do they know that they're invested in wind farms in Alberta, that Albertans are paying a, a surcharge on for uh, unreliable power? You know, they may not be aware of those details, but their ideology is supporting it and teaching it to the children so that those children will grow up to support the same ideology that pumps up the stock and supports the pension funds. So, um, you know, and that's all behind the scenes. Almost nobody ever talks about that. Um, and I really think that it's something that citizens should be asking about. So when you hear a wacky plan coming from your city hall, you should be demanding full um, disclosure, mm -hmm. uh, like who's benefiting, who's driving this and why. But, you know, are we buying electric buses in Calgary because the one of the pension plans of the city is invested in this firm somehow. Mm -hmm. And you may not be able to find a direct link. It might be through a mutual fund, but we need to know these things because so many things in the climate world and these investments do not make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, it, none of it makes sense. That's that's why I, I wanted to talk to you today and man, you're blowing my mind. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I, I'm slowing down at points because I'm like, I'm still processing a lot of what you're saying because half of this stuff, you know, you have a hunch that the, that these things are happening, right? But mm -hmm. again, like, you know, I, I'm just a regular guy. I, I, I read what's available to me and, you know, I'm able to process about a third of it when it comes to this because I don't understand the science. Now, um, you know, this this idea of reducing our carbon emissions, I've heard a few scientists actually uh, describe how this could be a potential catastrophe for humanity because we require the CO2 in our atmosphere to sur for survival. We need it. Like it, the uh, one scientist I was listening to said, you know, the lower the CO2 levels are in the atmosphere, the, the, the more you can, you can expect smaller crops smaller output from agriculture. Now, um, you're nodding. So would you mind explaining a little bit or, or going into that? Well, I think the best resource for that is probably Dr. Patrick Moore. Mm -hmm. And we have a few videos of his on our website, and there are many of them around the internet. But sort of the bottom line for CO2 concentration in the air, carbon dioxide concentration is 150 parts per million, as I understand it. And at that point, plants start to die. So, um, you know, now we're around 400 parts per million and it's going up and that's a good thing because we're having more prolific crops. We don't want to go down. So all these people who are busy investing in direct air capture, you know, they've got these big sort of air vacuums that are supposed to suck the carbon dioxide out of the air 
and turn it into something else like uh, carboniferous rocks or something. Well, I don't know that we really want that. Not to mention it takes a huge amount of energy to take carbon dioxide from the air because it's so diffuse. <clears throat> and just to go back to Enron for a moment, people may wonder, well, where did, where did all of this idea come from? See, um, Enron got into the uh, carbon, the cap and trade business back in the time when acid rain was a thing. And acid rain was being created because of the sulfur dioxides that were uh, emitted by industrial plants, mostly coal plants. So and they knew that it would take a while for these plants to have technology installed, they're called scrubbers, to get rid of that. So in the meantime, they allowed people to cap and trade between those who had lower emissions and those who had higher emissions. Enron made a bundle on that, and it took a much shorter time to install scrubbers on most of these plants and bring them down to the safe levels. So they looked for another option, like what else could we use for trading? What other gas is there? And they decided on carbon dioxide. Now, see, the difference is carbon dioxide is a gas, but these uh, molecules or these uh, elements that were being filtered, they're aerosols, they're little tiny particles. So, you know, if you held up a sieve, if you think of a sieve and you have something with lumpy particles in it and you put it through the sieve, of course, the sieve will catch and filter those particles. But if it's a gas, the sieve will not filter them. So this is the challenge of of taking carbon dioxide from the air. It's a gas already. It's very diffuse, very small amount of it in the atmosphere. So it takes a lot of energy to capture it. But as Dr. Richard Lindzen pointed out many years ago, if you control, if you control carbon dioxide, you control life. Mm -hmm. And again, we get back to that notion of control and population control. And these are all things that the club of rome has been pushing since the 1970s you know depopulation uh reduction of agriculture and um global control so mm -hmm. and the club of rome is quite uh it's not an obvious player in the climate gig but it's prevalent it's very much associated with the potsdam institute for climate which is out of germany mm -hmm. And the uh, Club of Rome has issued a planetary emergency plan, which is almost identical to the one that the federal government is following today, uh, and almost identical to what was presented at COP as the future solutions. You know, these are unelected, unaccountable transnational people yeah. who are making decisions about your life, your future, your children's future. There is no accountability there. And... Um, you know, we're all being pushed into this climate tyranny um, without much choice and without much option for response. Yeah. So, uh, man, I'm so glad you brought that up because the Club of Rome is actually the foreign affairs arm of the Bilderberg Group. And, <laughs> and it's so hard to have this discussion because when you start talking about secret societies, people's eyes glaze over and they're like, oh, here we go, Freemasons. I'm writing um, an essay right now, which is the second part of my exploring a depopulation agenda essay. And 
it's the most difficult essay I've ever written because it's so hard to talk about this stuff without sounding crazy. Right. right. And, and like, well <laughs> yeah, well, in my, in my uh, essay, I'm exploring the Georgia Guidestones and they're, I mean, it's spoiler alert. It, the, they were, it's, it's basically a, the tablets were basically what's inscripted on them is, is just a Rosicrucian uh, it, it's it's very much based on Rosicrucianism, right? And Rosicrucianism is another secret society very closely related to Club of Rome and all the other secret societies that emerged in Germany in the 17th century, roughly around the same time, right? Mm. And they incorporated cultism and, and uh, esoteric belief with Jewish mysticism, hermeticism, and other things, right? So it's so difficult to have this conversation because the moment you start talking about that, you sound crazy and it's almost like you're discrediting yourself, but you can't have the discussion without talking about those groups. And, you know, with the World Economic Forum, I think this is the first time in modern history where a secret group has been made public and we can see it and view it and look at their agenda. I mean, I read The Great Reset. I'm not sure if you have. It was the worst read of my life. I wanted to smash my head through it. It's like a. I said to Brett Weinstein, it's a, it's a 100-page brochure for fascism, essentially, is what you're <laughs> reading, right? Um but but with the World Economic Forum, it's the first time that like we we can you can go on YouTube and watch your videos and see what they're saying. Like it's not a conspiracy theory, but we've been plunged into this weird, you know, dystopian fantasy world where even the stuff that is being said and is occurring right in front of us isn't actually happening because if you believe it, then you're a MAGA conservative Trump supporting white supremacist conspiracy theorist, even though it's right there. <laughs> You left right? out Nazi. <laughs> no, Nazi, that too, right? Which which ironically, which ironically, this this agenda that they're pushing forth, as you mentioned, as you highlighted earlier, is is basically Nazism, right? I mean, we're we're back there again. It's just it's a it's done through a technocratic, tyrannical method, right? Yeah. So I guess in closing, I've kept you for an hour. I could talk to you for hours. Uh, Michelle, you you blew my mind today. I'm I'm really hoping we can talk again because your your insight. You answered so I had like a lot of questions ready in my head. And then as you were talking, I was like, oh, she answered that one. Oh, she answered it. Oh, she answered that. One. Um uh now I I I want to ask you, how do we get out of this? How how do we fix this, this problem? Uh that's a big one. I don't know. I mean, for one thing. You know, I think it was Charles McKay who said that men go mad in herds, but they regain their senses one by one. <clears throat> so I think really we just have to concentrate on the one by one, the people who we can maybe bring to some rational discussion and consideration. Uh, we definitely have to maintain and fight for every existing freedom and right that we have and not just assume that benevolent things will happen um i'd say for instance in relation to cbdc's you know the bank of canada put out a survey recently suggesting that uh, 85 percent of canadians don't want cbc cbcds central bank digital currencies um so I think a lot of people kind of breathed a sigh of relief and said, oh, that's great. Then we won't have them. <laughs> well, you know, that 
that survey could also mean that people understand, oh, then we have to find a way to force people to have it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, because they won't take it willingly. And of course, uh, you know, CBCD, CBDC can lead us into a situation where it wouldn't be a matter of convenience. It would be a matter of you being tracked all the time. Your personal carbon ration would be on there too. And uh, you could be denied things for having an interview like this. Um, you know, so uh, we don't wanna go to that route. We shouldn't take it for granted that just because a lot of Canadians object to something that no further move will be made to impose that upon you. You know. It, we have um, a Deutsche Bank document on our website. It's, it's linked at the bottom of the world according to Ben Stein, which is the blog post. But Deutsche Bank is looking for an eco-dictatorship to build back better. Mm -hmm. And the example they give is like, what if a person doesn't want to make their house net zero or they don't have the money to make their house net zero? You know, should the house be expropriated? then i mean this is a german bank for god's sake talking yeah. about an eco dictatorship but they're quite serious and we see that in many of the kind of moves that are being made now in most countries of the world that are on the climate bandwagon mm -hmm. they're looking for draconian ways to force people to have a heat pump to drive an ev to walk to work i mean there's even a little video that the canadian government just put out raising the bar on climate you know showing some guy taking the bus two times a week and people hanging their laundry out on a line i mean i'm all in favor of saving money and you know using modern conveniences whether it be a bus or whatever but that's not going to save the climate right yeah. these psychological nudge tech techniques to gain your compliance and bigger climate draconian measures are ahead so every time you comply, um, then they pushed you that much further. So we have to really stand our ground and protect whatever freedoms that we have. Yeah, I mean, even the term climate change itself is a stupid term, right? Because the climate's always changing. If it didn't change, we'd all be dead, right? Like it, right. it has to change. And we have four seasons. It's, it changes constantly, right? Um, and, you know, I guess the one one thing I do want to talk to you about really quickly before I let you go is is the carbon tax system because this seems like another system designed to impoverish Canadians, put us into a position where we have less money to spend, therefore less money to to you know purchase basic items like food, so that when the prices on on food increase naturally because of carbon taxes. Um, then we're we're unable to actually afford them, and there you and there again you get your famine and your starvation. Right now, do you have any insight on the carbon tax scheme, how it's structured, how you know? Obviously, you're not you don't know where the money goes, but do you have any ideas as to how this is all working? Um, well, we have a number of reports and commentaries by Robert Lyman on our uh, blog on our website. So I would refer people to that for the details. But one of the things that Robert Lyman brought up at his recent presentation for us, which is also online, it's also on YouTube, it's called When Will Climate Policy Hit the Wall? He pointed out that it's not only the carbon tax. Like for one thing, if we just talk about the carbon tax for a moment, um, he told us that in 2019, the carbon tax imposed a $1.30 
percent dead weight loss in the economy per dollar of tax value, meaning that um, and I think this is a very simple example that Marty Ep North gave, <laughs> not knowing that he was showing the dead weight loss. But if the carbon tax imposed upon him was about $600 a year, how could he get that back? Well, he would have to either ask for a raise and his employer would not be able to give it to him because of the carbon taxes on the company. He would have to invest in companies, but that takes a long time to make your money back. Or he would have to forego things that he might do, like say a $500 ski weekend or a $500 fancy dinner out with his wife or buying a certain kind of tool or, or something. So what that means is the ski hill loses out, the restaurant loses out, the uh, retailer that sells that tool loses out because he can't afford to buy that. And this becomes like a, um, you know, a domino principle or a downward spiral in the economy. Now, the carbon tax, uh, they say about 80% is returned to people, but it's not returned to the same people. Hmm. Like you don't get back the same amount that you spent because it's distributed down the line, but it actually impacts the smaller people or less wealthy people more than it does somebody who's rich. Like if you're rich, you don't mind if you have a $5,000 a month uh, heating and light bill. What do you care? You know, just write the check. But if you are a poorer person or middle class, that's a big hit when you get a, a, a larger sum. Now, the other 20% of the carbon tax is invested in these green projects. But the problem is if you take that 20%, it's a few billion dollars by the time they've collected it all, put it into a green project. That green project is also subsidized by other government departments and all levels of government, federal, municipal, provincial, they all have some little money that they're throwing at it. And it's not the government's money, people. It's your money. There's yeah. only one taxpayer. So, um, you know, that's, that's the big problem with the carbon tax. The second thing that Robert Lyman showed us is that it's not only the carbon tax. It's the 400 other measures that governments have implemented at federal, provincial, and municipal levels that are all entangled. There are GHG reduction uh, regulations and incentives and subsidies at all these different levels. They're all entangled. Nobody knows which one of them, if any, are working. Um, and these are the things that make it unbearable to live these days. And they're imposing more, you know? So it's really this, uh, never-ending sort of clampdown in a desperate effort to reduce carbon dioxide emissions to meet fictitious goals, while at the same time, we're bringing in millions of refugees, each one of them, and, and immigrants, each one of them adds a carbon footprint to Canada. So we'll never meet any of these Paris targets, because every person who comes here usually comes from a warm country, and they increase their carbon footprint and increase our carbon footprint. So that's not a comment on immigrants. It's a comment on carbon footprints. You can never meet climate targets if you're bringing in a million people every year um, and another million as students and uh, uh, temporary workers. You can't. Mm. They all use energy, right? So 
I don't know if that really answered your question, but no, and I can I can reinforce your argument. My wife is Filipina, and our house is constantly like 110 degrees. It's brutal. It's it's hard. I have to walk around without a shirt on all the time. So you're right. <laughs> but even if it even if it wasn't 110 degrees, what I'm saying is, you know, uh, people are coming from India, China, and yeah. the Philippines. In the those are the largest numbers. Um, and in China, I think the carbon footprint per person is about seven tons CO2e. In Canada, it's about 17. Mm -hmm. uh, that, because we have to survive here. So we need a heated house. We need a car. We need transportation. Our goods need to be transported across this very vast country. We don't have seaports inland. We're not like the U.S., where you have the big waterway, the Mississippi, Missouri, where yep. you can transport things on a barge all the way up into the center of the country. Uh, you know, we, we have very significant, expensive, energy-intensive transportation needs in Canada that will never go away. Making an electric train will not make them go away. You still need power to make that train go. So, yeah, not to mention we're the last stop before the North Pole, right? Like, exactly. I mean, you know, like it's 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 such a mess Michelle like it, 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 and it and it's like you know I've had this thought recently like and I'm probably going to write an essay on this but is this the way it's always been or is it just getting worse or is it like are we just more aware of what's happening now because of the internet because of our ability to communicate or or is it actually getting this bad like are we are we back to uh you know Weimar Germany Weimar the Weimar Republic right before Hitler you know, rolls in and, and takes over. Right. I mean, you know, well, the, I hate to say it, but I think we're pretty close to that. I think yeah. we are too. I think we are too. You know, you, the Weimar Republic was a very chaotic time in Germany, right? The Kaiser had just been abdicated. Uh, they had, they, they had a democratic Republic uh, introduced in a society that had never had democracy before they were used to living under authoritarian rule, rule under a monarchy. And, if you if you reflect back on the political chaos that was that was occurring there during that time it really paved the way for hitler right because the 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 german people were suffering and there's a lot in our society that mirrors what was happening during that time and right. people you know, were just totally disheartened and burned out and worn down and i think if you watch the the musical ironically of cabaret Mm -hmm. again and and watch it and think about you know when they're saying so who cares so what you know um then you realize how crushed the german people were and people i think generally didn't have the will to fight back and certainly when you see people being killed in the streets you know you don't want to be next it takes a very brave person to try and stand up and a few did but uh, not the majority. And that's why we have to protect our freedoms and rights that we presently have really yes. vigorously. Yes. And, and that's, that's my concern. My concern is that we are opening the door to a Hitlerian figure right now. Doesn't mean it's Trump or a conservative could I, as I see it right now, I see more of that behavior on the left than I do on the right, but I'm trying not to live in that left-right dichotomy anymore because I'm realizing it's bullshit on both sides, right? I mean, I've known that for a long time, but it's more evident now than ever. But my concern is that, you know, we see a lot of nations, that pendulum swinging toward the right, right? After, 
years of socialist policy. I mean, we just recently saw it shift in Argentina. We're seeing Spain going through a, a massive transition right now because with their illegitimate socialist government and, you know, Canada has been ground zero for this World Economic Forum sponsored experiment. I mean, we are the place where it all happens first. You know, you look at the United States, they have their Green New Deal now, which is which is very closely patterned to our carbon tax system and our and our uh, uh, climate policy. Right. So my concern is that, yeah, we're opening the door to something very dangerous and we're going to fall for it because we're going to be so desperate to get out of the situation that we're in, which I feel we're close to in Canada. I do not know a single Canadian who is a supporter of this Trudeau liberal government. And I think, like you said, we're, we're in a very, we're in the same place. We're all beaten down and we've, we've, we've been through a meat grinder for the last four years and it doesn't look like it's going to get any better. It actually looks like it's getting worse. So what we're looking for is a savior. We're looking for somebody to step in and make things better. And, and that's a dangerous place to be in. And, and, you know, there's no real question there. And it's more of a statement. That's, that's my fear. My fear is just that we're going to look for respite with somebody who says they can provide it or respite with somebody who says they can provide it when they have no intention of doing so. Well, on that note, I think that as long as we can maintain a free press and independent voices, uh, there will be a means of tempering whatever or whoever comes along. But the real risk, and um, I think we've tweeted this a few times, is what Amartya Sen found, and he's a Nobel Prize winning econo economist. And he found that uh, they did a survey around the world and they found that whenever the free press thrived, even when there were very difficult problems in a country, the country was able to resolve them because uh, important matters were brought to the public's attention and something could be done. But they also found that in places where there were serious challenges and problems, like in China under Mao, where freedom of the press was extinguished, mm -hmm. then famine ensued. And he cites a number of examples of that. And, and that's why freedom of speech and freedom of the press is so important. And I think Andrew Lawton's also made that case, you know, because without it, you can't argue for your perspective. Now, whether or not we agree is irrelevant. But if I can't tell you what I think and freely and without fear, and you can't argue back to me or make your case, then we're lost. So that's one of the most important things that we have to maintain. And, and ironically, going back to Friends of Science, that's one of the things that as I became part of Friends of Science, you know, I'd say, well, why don't you guys, you know, run an ad? Well, found out when we tried to run an ad, we were canceled. You know, why don't we do some press releases? No one in Canada will pick up our press releases. No one, none of the media will pick them up. So, you know, um, we send them to other places, but, um, you know, that's that's just an inkling. That's why we got so far down this crazy climate road toward the climate tyranny, because the free press denied us the opportunity to speak up and to advocate for open civil debate on climate and energy policies and full cost benefit analysis. That's what we really need. And I, 
I think that's probably a good spot for me to stop going on and on. <laughs> that was perfect. And you know, you have a you have a, a a megaphone with me if you ever need it anytime. I am always here. Um, you know, it's funny. I I usually as I'm having these discussions, make markers in my head when I hear somebody say something. I'm like, oh, that's I got to clip that out, and I want that to 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 stand alone. I have like 25 markers in my head right now with with our, our discussion today. So I don't even know if I'm going to be able to clip stuff out of this because everything is so important. Um, but on that note, Michelle, can you tell everybody where they can find you? Sure. Uh, we're online with friendsofscience.org. And uh, we're on YouTube. We're on LinkedIn. We're, we just got onto Gab. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, friends o science on Twitter. And uh People can become a member and then you'll get our newsletters. Uh, you can certainly subscribe to our YouTube page. It's pretty lively, pretty active. And um, we'd love to have people engage and debate with us. That's what we like. So uh, if you want to help us out, you can send us a donation. Uh, contact at friendsofscience.org. You can just send an e-transfer. And even a small amount would be helpful because we operate on about $150,000 a year from our members. And um, yeah, we don't take government money. We don't get grants. We're not a charity. So we're up against uh, the big charities that have really literally millions of dollars in their kitty. And a lot of it came from you. So, <laughs> so if you want to help us spread some common sense, please do so. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you guys are out there. You know, um, it, I, like I said, your account is one of my favorite accounts to follow. I, it's one of the play. I have a short list of accounts that I check every morning just to see what's happening. And you're on that list. And I encourage everybody uh, who's listening right now to go follow Friends of Science, to go to the website, to watch the YouTube channel. To, I mean, you guys really are doing a fantastic job. And Michelle, you represented the team perfectly. You you were so informative and uh i really 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 thank you for this conversation thank you jason my pleasure